In this episode, part two of our Cuban cocktails investigation, we are talking about the daiquiri. Was it an historic plantation drink or was it an early 20th century USA Cuban fusion invention? We plan to find out. Plus, Hemingway. Was he a daiquiri or a mojito man? Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests with tasty facts, foodie secrets, and more. Hey everyone, welcome to part two of our Cuban Cocktails podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about the daiquiri. Although you can totally listen to this as a standalone podcast, but we do recommend that you go back and listen to our mojito episode from last week, because it's going to give you a little bit of extra historical context that uh, will help you understand this a little bit better. The reason why we split it up into two is uh, we've been making some really long episodes lately. They've been going on and we just wanted to give it a little try to see if you guys uh, prefer a shorter episode or if uh, you want us to go back to the longer one. So, here's a couple of shorter ones to see uh, what you think. So, why not tweet us at Food Fun Travel or join our Facebook group, which is called Food Worth Traveling For. Just search for that on Facebook and let us know what your ideal podcast length is. Do you like these shorter episodes that are short stories about individual dishes or are more hefty one hour plus what to eat in destination episodes that cover quite a few dishes in one destination or perhaps even our super long double episode mega features like our episode on tacos it was actually two episodes on tacos like almost two hours of taco information we didn't even expect it to be that long no (laughs) but it's some in-depth good information exactly we love doing the taco episode and if you haven't listened to that that was uh, right back at the start of season one or of course maybe something in between maybe a sort of 35 to 40 minute one episode on a specific dish that's a bit more in depth it always depends on the dish some dishes we found we can easily make a 40 minute episode other ones we are struggling to make more than 20 so that's why they get compiled into like four or five dishes in one episode for a destination episode so yeah But we'd love to know what you guys think so that we can make choices in the future as to how we want to do this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, if you are wanting to keep up to date with future episodes that we do have coming out, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes uh, so you'll get a notification when our new episodes do come out. Also, subscribe to our email list as well. You can also go around and feel free to tell your friends about the show because, you know, maybe your mum might want to listen to uh, a little bit of history about the daiquiri. Or maybe you have other friends other than your mum. It's possible. I don't. No, you don't. No, I do. Well, do you? Yeah. You're all my friends. Everyone listening right now is my friend. Oh, wow. I don't know if they they think that. (laughs) No, they're stuck with me now. They they are. So, yeah, if you've subscribed, it's too late. You're Meg's friend (laughs) forever. BFFs. That's Best it. foodie friends. But yeah, you can join our mailing list at foodfuntravel.com slash the dish. Anyway, that's enough for the start of the show. Let's get into it. We're going to be talking about the daiquiri today. Let's do it. The history of the daiquiri. It's one of the other most famous Cuban cocktails for sure. Do you think it's more famous than a daiquiri um, than a mojito? I think so. I definitely, well, I mean, if you've been listening to this podcast for long enough, you might know that um, we both used to work on cruise ships. And I think of daiquiris as a real cruise ship drink for some reason. It's like 
Because of the Caribbean. Exactly. What am I going to have on holiday in the Caribbean? Well, I'll have a daiquiri, of course. So, I think I definitely had a knowledge of daiquiris before mojitos, for sure. I feel like daiquiris are a little bit more classy. Because of the glass? Yeah, because they serve it in the fancy, like, martini-type glass. Yeah. As opposed to it just being a long drink. I also, in particular, prefer, like, I don't like a frozen daiquiri because I feel like I'm not getting anything. I feel like I'm just getting, it's like drinking air. That said, the best daiquiri I've ever had, which was in Havana. It was a frozen daiquiri. It was a frozen daiquiri. It was a really hot day, so. It (laughs) melted pretty quick. Yeah. Which meant the bottom that you were drinking from the bottom through the straw every time was already just melting to perfection. That particular daiquiri that we had in Havana was like a complete game changer for me. I've never been a massive fan of them. As I said, like I find it to be just a little, yeah, they always come frozen and they're just a little bit too sweet and sugary for me. But those ones that we had were sensational, like game changer. Made fresh, not using horrible like concentrates, yeah. like actual fresh ingredients Exactly in Havana on a hot day. Perfection. Although we did try daiquiri at quite a few places and it was just one place that really rocked our socks off. Yeah. So that made a huge difference. All right. So where did the daiquiri come from? Okay. So first of all, I mean, the daiquiri, let's face it, the ingredients are almost the same as a mojito. It's got rum, it's got sugar, it's got lime, it's got ice in it. I mean, the difference is that it's not watered down with soda water and it doesn't have the mint. So it doesn't have that herbal flavor or the um, yerba buena. Of course, if you're doing it properly, not See? mint. You've got to do it properly. So, yeah, it's like a more concentrated, more sour version. A little bit less sugar going on as well. It, it's focusing on the sour side of things. Which is interesting that you like it more because you don't do sour. But it's still sweet and sour uh, because it has just enough sugar in it to remind you that it has both. All right. Keep going. So, the invention of the modern daiquiri, at least, is actually documented. Yay! What? Actual documents rather than just hearsay. And let's just point this out. I mean, I know this is a world of everyone's documenting freaking everything now, so I don't think anything's going to be- Back in the day, no one was. Yeah, I don't think anything's going to be lost in time today, but it's like, if you make something, just just write it down. It makes our job so much easier. (laughs) Also, someone else will steal the idea of you if you don't have a document dated. (laughs) Exactly. An online Google document that was dated. Yeah. Yeah. Don't just write it at home on a piece of paper. Google Documents, the date will be printed, Google set the date, it's out of your hands and it's proof. Just do it for history's sake. Do it for your sake. Otherwise, just like the plantation slaves of Cuba, all of the rights will go to somebody else, just like they have with the daiquiri. All right, tell well, me. Well, it's also, I mean, it's the same drink, isn't it? It's the same so drink. Yeah, same thing. Slight yeah. variation on what was available, but it's the same core ingredients without the herbs. So the formal invention of the daiquiri is attributed to at least in part, to Mr. Jennings Stockton Cox. From Baltimore originally, but he moved to Cuba in the late 19th century to take advantage of the booming mining industry, Mm -hmm. as you do. Of course, as we said, the original ingredients are basically the same as what Drake did in 1586. So did he invent it? Probably not. Did he modify it? It's hard to claim that in the 19th century that he invented something that simple that was already being drunk pretty much in 1586. But still, he did formally name it and document it and record in his journal the exact recipe that he used to make it and is the first and only from that time recipe that specifically suggests what a daiquiri is. Rip, pivot, jam. Yep. Stole someone (laughs) someone else's idea, made it just a little bit better. 
And then sold it as his own. Yeah, surprising. It had never really been recorded before. That's the curious difference is no one actually thought to go, well, let's do this. Because it's so simple. It's three ingredients. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes back in those days, there's something that's been done for so long or is just so mainstream. People just sort of maybe already assumed that it had been written down or someone had already. Well, they couldn't write because they worked on a plantation. As a no, slave. but, you know, like someone else passing by, like Drake or, you know, all of those dudes, you know, you just would have thought someone along the way passing through the plantation, whatever, would have had some documentation of this. And it's almost like it doesn't even pass through your head to write it down because you think someone's already done it. But it's strange with Drake. A lot of sources say that he did write it down. Yeah, I searched literally for hours to find an original source of the text or even a more sophisticated source rather than just a website that says, yeah, he did it. None of them did. This is also the problem with people discovering booze. Because <laughs> you, inten- you have every intention of writing it down, <laughs> and then you forget what you're doing. But unlike the naming of the mojito, which we didn't talk about in the last episode about mojitos, the naming of the mojito could have come from different words. There's a few different options, but one is mojo, which is the sour, sour sauce that they used, a sour marinade that they used, because it also featured lime. Or sour orange, depending. But, you know, it had a, a sour flavor. So it could have come from that. Moho. Mojito is like a little moho. Yeah. There, there's a lot of different stories about that, which we're not going to go into. But unlike that, where the word probably developed over time, the name for the daiquiri is very specifically named after the town daiquiri in eastern Cuba. There's a town. It's how, called daiquiri. How did we not know this or go there? Because it was a very long way from Havana on oh. a very long hot bus, probably without any aircon And a lot of chickens. <laughs> yeah. It's right at the other end of the island. You're talking about like a 16-hour bus ride. A lot of chickens and three goats. Wasn't going to happen. Now, there's actually a lot of different stories associated with the naming and invention of the daiquiri. Which one is true? We're not entirely sure, but let's have a look at a few of these. So. The first one, apparently one night, while entertaining guests from the mainland, Cox ran out of gin. God Heaven forbid. forbid. Who knew living in Cuba? Oh. He was like, oh, well, I, I can't entertain my... Well, he was American, but why, let's assume he's English just for the sake of the accent. Because <laughs> you can't do a Boston accent. I can't do a Boston accent properly. <laughs> no, he was from Baltimore, actually. Oh. But let's say he's English Baltimore. All right, fair enough. From 1898, English Baltimore. Uh, he ran out of gin. I mean, who? <gasps> what, what sort of heathen would serve anything other than gin when you come and visit your friends? You, you, you go all the way to Cuba. To visit your American friends, and it's got no gin. It wants you to drink local rum. Disgusting. Disgusting. You're already crashing and burning in all of the social circles back in Baltimore. Just flame, flaming mess. You're like, sorry, Cox. No gin. Go back to America. Wouldn't speak like that at all. 1898 would have probably spoken American. But who knows? Maybe they're all English Americans. I doubt <laughs> no, it. Very much, by then. Very, very much, much doubt it. Anyway, he ran out of gin. But thankfully, because he was living in Cuba, he had a massive stash of Bacardi Carta Blanca, the original white Bacardi rum that was already quite popular by them because Bacardi is a really old company. You wouldn't think it's that old because it's so much the woo girl drink. It is now. And that's what I think of Bacardi. You don't think of it as being like this dignified 
old drink. I'm not sure it was dignified. It's never been dignified. Because he was trying to serve gin instead. But, That's true. So, it's just old. It's never had any dignity to it. Fair mm, enough. No, but it, Bacardi actually is one of the original rum companies, along with Mount Gay Rum was the first rum company. Bacardi is one of the oldest ones as well. Wowza. I don't have the date because I didn't think it would be relevant, but yeah, now apparently fine. it is. So, you know, tweet us at Food for Travel. What's the date? Bacardi was a thing. Because he didn't want to destroy the palettes and constitutions of his sensitive American guests. Well, you know, if they'd they'd had to drink something other than gin, it might have been very difficult for them. So instead, apparently, he decided to put uh, some lime and sugar and lots and lots of ice in to mask the flavour of this dirty rum that he had. I mean, it sounds a bit lame, but also it is quite possible that, yes, there was a dinner party and he went, oh, we're out of gin. Listen, when you run out of booze, you'll drink anything. Yeah. And you try your best to make it you know, what you can in your drunk state to make it as best as possible. And I think that's a totally plausible thing that he would have done. Yeah, exactly. I think that's definitely what I'd have done. So Exactly. This could be a guy that just agrees with my philosophies on life. Think of the crazy concoctions you've made drunk when we're like, we're out of booze. What have we got left in the cupboard? I'm just going to mix a little bit of everything together and it's going to be, I'm going to be famous for all time. Well, the new rule for us is don't drink the cooking wine. <laughs> That's our new life rule. If you run out of booze in the house, don't, don't the move on to cooking wine. wine. Just be aware that's the end of the night. Go to bed. <laughs> and I think that's a great rule to live by. If you don't have that rule in your household already, please consider it. Well, Cox didn't listen to that rule and he went on to the rum. He did, which for most people seems like a starting drink. But for him, that was the backup to the gin. Anyway, that's one theory. We'll get back into whether that's accurate later on. Now, another theory is that just a group of American engineers, including Cox, because he was also an engineer who went out and tried to make the mining industry work. I think he did pretty well. Uh, They were just in their local bar, tossing back some lime-based concoctions that the bar had made up for them, as you do, because it's the local cheap drink. I've done that. And after being to the bar many, many times, uh, Cox, who was one of the main engineer guys, said to the other guys, hey, you know, We've been drinking this drink for a while. Maybe we should choose a name for it. And they decided, well, the local town is called Daiquiri. Let's use that. Let's just call it Daiquiri. And that was it. That was pretty much it. It was already being made. And he just went, yep. That seems seems quite plausible. Now, it does seem very possible that something like this did happen. But it also seems a little bit odd that the one document we have proving that the recipe was invented very late 19th century, early 20th century is a formal recipe that he entered in his own journal. So if the bartender had been making the drinks, why did he then go home and go, oh, I've called it daiquiri. I should write it uh, down. Oh, yeah. Seems a bit weird. If he drunk in the bar, maybe he journaled at the bar. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that was his thing. He journaled at the bar every day. Scrapbooking, cutting out of magazines yeah, and you I mean, know, vision boarding as he sits at the bar. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I feel like actually it's a little bit less It likely. does make sense, actually. Yeah, I think if you have, like you make a killer drink, you're like, I need to write this down. So I feel like perhaps, obviously, he tried the original drink from locals who made it. I don't think he just discovered that, obviously, because it had never been anywhere apart from the Caribbean. Yeah. And he sat down in a bar and they gave it to him and went, that's great. And then at some point he went home and went, hmm, well, I'm having a dinner party. What's that drink that I always have when I go out to the local bar with the boys? Oh, yeah. And then he made it at home and he went, hmm, maybe I should write this down. I think. I think it's more likely that he went, I've had this drink at the bar all the time. We're out of gin. 
let's try and do a drink at home the same. Let's try and emulate that. I wonder what they make that, how they make that. I know it's got lime and I know it's got sugar and I'll try and do that. So there is actually another story that suggests that he literally just experimented at home with the proportions of the, the lime and the ice and the sugar and everything. So that's one of the other smaller stories. And eventually then he would have found a perfect blend and gone, yep, that is the right proportions. I'm putting that in my journal. So yeah, I think it's probably a mix of the three. Yeah. Someone else showed him the drink. He went, this is awesome. He played around with it at home. Maybe he had it before these dinner guests turned up. Or maybe he just made it on the fly when they turned up and went, oh, now I should mess around with that a bit more because yeah. that was quite good. They mm-hmm. enjoyed it. Let's, let's do a bit more experimentation. I think it's all three stories, yeah. personally, but there's no proof. That's just my personal opinion. No, I think, I think they all sound very reasonable. But I would say you don't normally go out your mates to the bar and start journaling. I know that weird people do that. <laughs> I just personally don't normally do that. So, so, so where, do you have any idea of how it became that it was served in a martini glass? I don't know about the martini glass, but I definitely know how it became popularized. Okay. So that's what's coming next. So, yeah, Cox had perfected his balance of the different flavors to make an excellent daiquiri. And he was definitely the first person to document it and the proportions that worked for him, at least, and proportions that are still sort of roughly used today as well. But to say that he invented the drink would be incredibly insulting to hundreds of years of history of people drinking this drink. But yeah, he documented it and he helped popularize it. Now, the reason that he suddenly pushed this drink into insane fame around the Americas, at least to start with and then beyond, was because rather inadvertently, Rear Admiral Lucius W. Johnson landed in Guantanamo Bay in 1909. So, like, within 10 years of him inventing this drink, Cox inventing this drink, this rear admiral just turns up and he's like, who am I going to hang out with around here? Well, who's the local guy? Who's in charge of the things? Oh, Mr. Cox. All right, hang with Mr. Cox. I also love in that time frame, they all went from having really proper British accents, even though they're from Baltimore, to having, like, full on, like, is that Texas? Is that a Texas? I don't really know, (laughs) ma'am. But I would say 1900 is the year exactly when everyone started talking American and no one talked English at all. All right. That's the year. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, I mean, obviously Cox was a local guy, like a big guy by that point because he'd been mining for years and he'd obviously done really well. So the rear admiral decided to go have a drink with this guy and he drunk the daiquiri and Cox went, this is the thing to drink. It's the local thing. Give it a, give it a go. Ten years of drinking them already. It was like, yeah, I got this down. This is amazing. And Johnson loved it. Johnson loved this drink. And as soon as he got back to the US, he took with him a bunch of Cuban rum. He took the recipe with him as well. And he went straight to the Navy Club and he taught the bartender how to make the drink because it was his new favorite drink. He went, you have to make this. And it was a massive hit in the Navy Club. All of the sailors in the Navy Club were like, yeah, this is one hell of a drink. And then. He loved it so much. I mean, he wasn't just a casual fan. He loved it so much that he then went to the university club in Baltimore and taught them how to make it so that they would serve it. He then also got repositioned to San Francisco and taught bars in San Francisco how to make it (laughs) because he loved it so much. Apparently, it was not a big hit in San Francisco immediately, but along the East Coast, a little bit more. And obviously, in Caribbean, 
a lot. Just a few years beyond that, we meet a new character in the story, Constante Ribalaguia Verde. He's from Catalonia, yeah. Spanish immigrant into Cuba. He became known as El Rey de los Coteleros, the king of the cocktails. Oh. He actually became like, not just in Havana, but Cuba, he became known as the king of the cocktails. Now, his 40-year reign, because he's a king, as head bartender and co-owner of the famous bar La Floradita. It's very famous. Very famous bar. It is said that as the king of the cocktails at La Floradita, he personally squeezed in his career in 40 years 80 million limes and made himself personally more than 10 million daiquiris. I'm guessing the rest of the staff made the other daiquiris. Yeah. He made 10 million daiquiris in 40 years. That's insane. Through the 30s, through to the 70s. That's absolutely bonkers. So at this time, obviously, the daiquiri had started to become popular in the early 20th century. And by the 1930s, it had definitely moved from east Guantanamo Bay side, very far east of Cuba, across to Havana. So it had become a popular drink in bars and especially La Floridita. Well, I think also because it's so simple as well. Like, you can just take it to the next destination and be like, can you make me this? And they'll be like, what's that? And you're like, oh, it's the daiquiri. You haven't heard of the daiquiri? Let me tell you about the daiquiri. And you feel like the coolest kid in town. It's like, and everyone goes, oh, that's good. And then they take it to the next place. And that's how it spreads. Yeah. And the story is that Constante, he introduced Hemingway to the daiquiri. And this is where all this Hemingway connection really comes from, is 1930s, mid-1930s. He actually gave him his first daiquiri. And Hemingway was definitely more of a daiquiri fan than a mojito fan because he liked sour cocktails. Yeah, this is like the authentic connection between Hemingway and cocktails in Havana. Yeah, and this is before 1942 when La Bogadita opened. So this is definitely pre Mojito Hemingway, which I don't think he was really Hemingway. Uh, he wasn't really a Mojito fan. So anyway, this is definitely true because there's actually a book. La Floridita published a book in the late 30s, and it included the fact that the Hemingway special was a daiquiri. Aha! Uh-huh. So there is an actual published record that Hemingway enjoyed this drink. In fact, they actually went on to make a double daiquiri, which had twice the rum and twice, twice of everything. It was like double-sized daiquiri. That sounds very Hemingway. That was a, a Hemingway special yeah, for that sure. sounds quite on, <laughs> on point. <laughs> so, yeah, this definitely happened. And amazingly, La Floridita has actually been a bar on exactly the same location in Havana for over 200 years. It opened in 1817. I didn't realize it had been there for that long. But the original bar was not called La Floridita. It was called La Piña de Plata, the silver pineapple. And I don't think they were necessarily serving daiquiris. Uh, but it was a but bar. But it's, it's been a bar for that long. Yeah. It is, it's prime bar location, I have to say. It's quite inland from like other parts of Old Havana. That's true. But it's also quite close to the government buildings. But it would have been there before the government buildings were built. Like most of the government buildings in Old Havana, just on the outskirts of Old Havana, are sort of more 20th century. So quite surprising. But obviously that was a, it was a good central point that, that worked all right. Yep. Away from the main squares. I think, yeah, I think it would have been away from everything in that time. It would have been a It'd space. It would have been a dive bar. It probably, yeah, perhaps. it would have been a dive bar, a space with good parking because there would have been space around it. <laughs> parking for your horse. So yeah. 1817. Yeah. 
You got to put your horse and Parking cart somewhere. Parking for your manservant. They had carts and stuff that they were taking around. You know, the designated driver would jump up front and everyone would climb into the cart and they'd take them home. If you know, that's true history. La Floridita has their tagline outside their bar as being the cradle of the daiquiri. And of course, when you look at the history, it's not the birthplace of the daiquiri. But I think that's really clever marketing. They've got away with making it seem like they invented the daiquiri, but actually they're very specifically language-wise not saying that. They're just saying that they they grew it into that's something like else. like Miami and the Cuban sandwich, although they're laying claim to they actually invented it. But if they were like the cradle of the Cuban sandwich, everyone would be like, yeah, you totally, you know, made the world aware that this is a thing. Yeah, so they've made a huge impact on the world of the daiquiri. And by the way, we talked about the Cuban sandwich in a previous episode, so go have a listen to that. If you're like, what are you talking about with Cuban sandwiches coming from Miami? They're not. So go listen to the last episode. Or are you, they? Or are they? Yes. But they're not. What? But are they? And yeah, so that's the crazy thing. They are very much saying, like, we helped the daiquiri along, but they're making it sound like perhaps they invented it, but they didn't. Yeah. Not at all. No historical evidence no, for that. No, I think that. that's great marketing. But, on them. however, they almost certainly did invent the frozen daiquiri. Because before that, Cox and his boys, they were just throwing ice in. The yeah, I couldn't daiquiri, imagine that the frozen daiquiri was a thing back then. No, nah, they were grinding the ice, making a frozen daiquiri, and that happened in the 1930s. So that could have been the first daiquiri that Hemingway had, or it could have happened around the same time. But yeah, 1930s sort of thing. Today, it is a massive, massive tourist trap, but it still feels sort of authentic looking inside. I like it. It's got this old school vibe to it, sort of. I mean, at the moment, it's kind of got this 50s-esque feel to it, maybe even 40s. it's been refurbished over the years, of course. But I think it still feels old. It's still old school in its feeling. And you will look in the windows and you'll see a whole bunch of tourists. But you know what? I, I didn't speak to a single person from Havana or a tour guide who we went around with who didn't recommend giving it a go. They're like, if, in, if you're in Havana once, you got to go there and have a daiquiri. We all know that none of those guys are going to spend $8 on a daiquiri. No, but so I mean, it's, it's for that, you know, it's the thing. It's like, if you're a tourist here. Yeah, you should go. Go I mean, and it, do it. It does have the history behind it. Opened in 1817, Hemingway genuinely, that was his favorite bar from Havana. Yep. And they invented the frozen daiquiri, that seems almost certain. Huge amounts of pedigree. Definitely better than going to La Bogadita for mojitos, in my opinion. But still, I don't think it's the best daiquiri. We had that outside of Old Havana. So <laughs> check yeah. out the article for that at foodfuntravel.com slash Cuban drinks. And you can find out where our favorite daiquiri was. As we've said in our Cuba Food Podcast, Cuba's inconsistent. Unfortunately, supply and everything just means things are inconsistent. So we exactly. can't guarantee it will be the best yes. daiquiri. Yes. But everything that we've recommended in the last two podcasts, literally take it with a grain of salt because we just there's no consistency at all in Cuba. So all we can do is tell you about the places that we enjoyed and where we did have a good meal. But yeah, you could walk in next week and it can be completely different. Yeah, things just change. They just change instantly when they don't have a supply or something. It's like, oh, we don't have that dish anymore. There's no beef this month. All right, no yep. rope over here. Like, that, that's it. We're done. Come back next month. Maybe we'll have beef. So, yeah, 
it's tricky, but it's also a fascinating place. So don't be turned off from visiting if you do have the opportunity to go, which we know is hard for some Americans given the current political climate. You can go on a cruise ship. You can still go on a cruise ship at the moment, but we don't know whether that's going to change or not. Who knows? But there you go. All right. So two of Cuba's most famous cocktails, two of the world's most famous cocktails that came from Cuba, really. That's, that's the thing that's really, I think, is more impressive about this. You, when you actually think about it, like everybody knows the mojito and everybody knows the daiquiri. And do they know that it came from Cuba? I didn't. I had no idea. And I think that's really impressive because, yeah, you, it is the biggest island in that area of like Central America, but it's still just a tiny island when it comes to the whole world. And, and two famous drinks came from there. Pretty awesome. So, yeah, do head to the show notes, foodfuntravel.com slash Cuba podcast to learn more about all of the food and drink that we talked about in the last two podcasts. If you didn't listen to the last podcast, do go back and listen to that. and. If you want to help out this show so that we can make more episodes and do real in-depth research into food and drink history, rather than just checking out the first two things on Wikipedia and going, must be a fact, because half the time we find (laughs) out it's not really a fact, it's a possibility or not even true at all. If you do want to help us continue with this project so we can find more interesting histories and closer to the truth, then head to foodfuntravel.com slash extras where you can help sponsor the show from as little as $1.50 a month. Not only will you get access to other episodes, bonus episodes that other people don't get access to, you will also be helping us with that mission to produce the best food history travel content on the internet. And also rate and review, right? Of course, yes. Five-star reviews on iTunes or anywhere that you happen to listen to your podcasts. We host our podcast through Podbean and we absolutely love them. So, um, yep, jump onto Podbean and give them a try or wherever it is that you happen to listen to your podcast, jump iTunes in. iTunes is fine too. Just yep. leave a good review. It means that we go up the ranks and we uh, get more listeners and that helps us make this show. Also, if uh, you have any questions or comments, please email us at megzy at foodfuntravel.com. We absolutely love hearing from you guys. And uh, if you have any recommendations on dishes that you'd like to hear about or you're going to a destination and you want to hear about what to eat in that destination, if we've been there, Who knows? Maybe it'll come up in an upcoming episode. And of course, tell your friends. Yeah. Anyone you know who likes food or travel or food history or food travel history, which is really what we're all about. Just let them know. Listen to the show and make this a success so that we can keep making it and keep bringing you fantastic information. Infotainment. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.